Welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 26, Putting a Cap on It. Last week, we left Germany with its prospective revolution in tatters, and the gatekeepers of the old regime riding high against their Marxist enemies. Meanwhile, this entire time, the nation had been living in the shadow of the consequences of losing World War I. The Entente naval blockade was still in place, and while some food shipments were sent in, it wasn't until summer 1919 that they really got going. The Entente was also occupying the Rhineland in the west of the country, which was a constant reminder of just how far the country had fallen. In June 1919, just as a semblance of peace was starting to take shape, the terms of the Versailles Treaty were delivered. I've already gone over the details of the treaty, and you know them. Territorial losses, military restrictions, demands of reparations, you get it. The Germans, as a people and state, did not take the terms very well at all. The first observation made in response to the severity of the treaty was that their nation had not been invaded, at least before the armistice. I earlier noted that Ebert welcomed the troops back home by reassuring them that they had not actually been beaten. They had nothing to be ashamed about, and they could expect a participation trophy in the mail. Following him, a cottage industry, among what passed for pundits in those days, sprung up, insisting that Germany had not truly been beaten in the war. Even the Kaiser, in exile in Holland, got in on the act and marveled at how many victories the army had, deluding himself into thinking that everything was going fine until the revolution. It was a conversation between a British officer and Ludendorff, though, that would coin the magical phrase that would haunt the historical narrative following the war. Ludendorff was explaining that the army was in a position to win, but that revolutionary elements back home had undermined the war effort directly. The British officer offered that it was like Germany had been stabbed in the back, to which Ludendorff excitedly agreed, yes, just like that. So that's where that infamous talking point came from. Anyway, the Germans had a really high opinion of themselves, and the treaty hit a nerve. They had been the leading nation of Europe, and given their size and resources, were one of the cornerstones of the world's economy. The country was highly populous for its physical size, and was equally industrious. It led the world in chemicals and pharmaceuticals. Its industrial products were noted all over the globe for their quality. Now they were being dictated to by nations who had been just a hair's length from disaster themselves at various points in the war. And yes, they took the clause of the treaty justifying reparations in order to rebuild the occupied parts of Belgium and France. As an indicator, they were to be assigned blame for the whole war, which was totally outrageous to the Germans, as in their eyes, they were protecting their hard-won nation, which was still in its relative infancy. You have to keep in mind that there was a deep German sensitivity to its central location on the continent. This was not the first time it had been harried from east and west simultaneously and the German people were successful in deluding themselves into thinking this justified things, like preemptively striking at its neighbors, and even invading a neutral area like Belgium. Not that everybody thought it was a particularly good idea, just an understandable one. The treaty set off a panic that had already been set up by national paranoia of outside attack, battered ego in defeat, and the sheer trauma of sacrificing an entire generation of blood and wealth with less than nothing to show for it and now all they were hearing was that it was all their fault, and they needed to pay further for their mistakes. Which wasn't exactly true, this was based on a misinterpretation of the treaty, it didn't actually assign blame, which I went over in the uh, the treaty episodes, but yeah, that's how they looked at it. 
For them, the Treaty of Versailles was just a lot to take in. I myself have never lost a world war, so I can't really put myself in their shoes in this case. The reaction to the treaty was received even less well by the military scene. A lot of the Free Corps had probably been hoping to be folded into the army, and some were. But with the 100,000-man limit, there wasn't a whole lot of wiggle room for the more marginal members. Even in its shrunken form, the army still had 350,000 men officially under arms at the time, so only the most promising soldiers were going to be kept on. This did two things. One, it created a vast population of discharged soldiers and officers who suddenly had to transition into civilian life. For far-right military types, working a shop floor or factory floor might not seem too appealing. Secondly, it left the army composed of only the most reliable members in the eyes of the officer corps. At least with a mass conscription army, the rank and file identified with the general population of the country. Now it was a sealed-off body that shared a much more specific ideology, one that did not favor democratic institutions. The officer corps that did the personnel selections were holdovers from the Imperial Army, and they were not happy with the shabby republic they were now stuck with. Even General Groner, the architect of the alliance with the SPD, did not escape this discontented mood within the army. From our perspective, you might think that the SPD making an alliance with the officers could be called a deal with the devil, with the officers in the diabolical role. And from the officers' perspective, this was true. But in their eyes, it was Ebert that took on the, the satanic role. Groner was forced to resign at the end of September, having lost the confidence of his colleagues, who saw him as too close to the despised government. He would be replaced by General Hans von Siecht, who would be perceived by many historians in generations following as being a good apolitical soldier. In reality, he was just keeping the despised government at arm's length from the army. Now, for all the upheaval the terms of the treaty were causing in public opinion, Ebert didn't really have a choice in the matter, and authorization was ultimately given for Germany to sign the Treaty of Versailles. The far right immediately lashed out and demanded some kind of fight to the finish, one I'm sure they would jump right into themselves, given the circumstances. This stain of acquiescence would dog Ebert and the SPD well into the future. But it was done, and peace was made official. In August, a new constitution also came into being, formally establishing what we call today the Weimar Republic. Not a lot changed, which was just according to plan. The Reichstag would operate as it had before, acting as a parliamentary body to pass legislation. The Chancellor would serve as head of government and would, in turn, appoint members of cabinet that would handle the various ministries of that government. Ebert stayed on as President of Germany, the head of state, which was directly elected by the German people. While he was not supposed to be involved in the day-to-day -day affairs of government, the presidency of Weimar Germany was awarded special powers that harkened back pretty far to the Kaiser that the office replaced. The president would be the one to confirm the chancellor, ostensibly the candidate presented by whatever political bloc had secured the most seats in the Reichstag. The president could also, at will, remove a chancellor and dissolve the Reichstag, triggering new elections. He would also be nominal commander of the army. Finally, the president would also have access to emergency powers, including the ability to suspend civil rights enforced through laws without Reichstag approval. Again, these were emergency powers, 
but as the definition of emergency was kept ambiguous, they could be applied creatively. Ebert would turn to them in order to force through legislation over and over again, which didn't really inspire a lot of confidence in the democratic process. So yeah, that's a quick little summation of how the Weimar government was set up. Trust me, there's a lot more wheeling and dealing that'll play into it once it gets up and running. And it was in the time of relative quiet after Versailles that the far right started taking stock of its options. The SPD had been selected to hold the nation together while a peace was finalized with the Entente, right? Well, the peace had been achieved, and the country was seemingly stable, or at least not falling into another revolution. Now they didn't really need the SPD too much, and plots started swirling to take down the republic that had just been established. The feelings toward an uprising were strongest in the Free Corps, naturally, especially since they were starting to feel left out in the cold. I mentioned earlier that the army had to be very choosy about who they took in, and the rowdier elements of the Free Corps knew they weren't getting back to the army. Plus, since the left had been crushed, their own legitimacy and purpose were both slipping away. Simply put, their usefulness to liability ratio was starting to tilt towards liability. But they didn't just go away. Oh no, that would be too easy. They hung together their barracks and looked forward to a collectively gloomy future, casting about for someone to overthrow Ebert and get them into more direct power, or at least put into power someone that would serve their interests. Our old buddy Captain Pabst, who had engineered the murders of Liebknecht and Luxembourg back in January, was one of the more active participants in these plots. He had already managed to co-op a Free Corps leader into marching into Berlin in July 1919, and even had gotten so far as having troops deployed into the city's suburbs. But General Marker was on hand to convince them to back down. This forced Paps to go quiet for a few months, but an opportunity later arose when the Free Corps units returning from Latvia started coming back. I didn't include the Latvian Free Corps' little adventure as I'll be covering it in the general Central Eastern European episodes, but I'll give you a little quick preview. The Baltic states were part of the territory that Germany won in the East during World War I, but was set to lose in the aftermath of the war being lost. The formerly Russian territory on the Baltic coast was in a state of flux, and an opportunity was seen to secure German interests in the region before Versailles slammed the door shut on that notion. Thus, a Free Corps expedition to Latvia was organized. They did their usual Free Corps stunts, this time on foreign soil. The hard Versailles peace terms rendered their mission moot, though, and when they refused to return to Germany, they were cut loose by Ebert's government. This perceived lack of loyalty infuriated them. When they were ejected from the Baltics later on, they returned to Germany in a hop more inclined than anyone else to overthrow the government that they perceived as having abandoned them in a foreign land. Pabst first tried to talk things out with Noske, which meant he actually proposed that Noske take over as dictator. Noske, for his part, brushed off this proposal politely, and then ordered Pabst's free corps to begin disbanding two days later. So, that meeting probably could have gone better for Pabst. Nevertheless, Captain Pabst kept at his plans of launching a coup gathering a network of like-minded characters. The figurehead of the group was an army officer who had commanded Paps Free Corps unit, Walther von Lutwitz. Lutwitz was selected mostly because he still had an army commission and, ergo, a degree of immunity from Noske. This was the only thing going for him, because Lutwitz 
was a bit of a tactless idiot. He had a habit of making direct demands to Ebert and Noske, even openly threatening them with a coup if military affairs were not run to his satisfaction. He was, simply put, not a subtle conspirator. And there were other figures, too, both civilian and military, in the conspiracy to overthrow the young republic, most notably General Ludendorff. At this point, he had returned to Germany from his brief Swedish exile. Once he considered the coast to be clear, he immediately got involved in the far-right political scene and wanted in on plans to restore the old order. The military, however, didn't want anything to do with him anymore, so he was more moral support to Lutwitz in the brewing coup. Things got hot enough that by October, General Seekt, having by now secured his position as the new head of the army, gave a specific order to his personnel that coups against the government were not going to be tolerated, which conjures the image of an exasperated parent who didn't expect to have to actually lay out basic ground rules like that so obviously. Ludwitz, though, of course didn't take the hint and still openly worked towards launching his coup. Many other army officers with free corps ties even got together and told him and Pabst that they couldn't count on their help, barring a sudden communist resurgence to give them some, some kind of cover. They still didn't get the hint, though. A pair of free corps brigades with fewer ties to the state and army, and bolstered by resentful veterans from the Baltic, did listen, though, and agreed to work with Lutwitz and Pabst. Noske and Seekt both got wind of this and ordered both free corps units to disband by March 10th, 1920. By the time March rolled around, though, there was no indication the units would be disbanding. This was serious, because both groups were composed of hardened fighters. These weren't just the dead-enders or adventurers. They were capable soldiers. Politicians from the far right tried to convince Lutwitz to stand his troops down, and even the chief of Berlin's police force tried to convince them to not go through with a push. Just a little terminology lesson I'm going to be introducing right now. The German word for coup is push. Why the history books use so many German terms, but only when talking about Germany, I don't really know. Everybody else, it's a coup. For Germany, it's a push. Kind of like how every other country uses a tank, but Germany, for some magical reason, uses panzers. Okay, end of the little terminology lesson. Ludwitz refused to commit to any semblance of good behavior, yet again. On the 10th, Noske formally switched command of Ludwitz's free corps over to one Admiral von Trotha, ostensibly so that he could see to it that the troops would discharge as planned, but in reality, to try and forestall the coup, everybody knew was now coming. That plan didn't work too well, as the Free Corps troops merely put on a show for Trotha that everything was fine and there was no coup to be found in Berlin, no sir. On the evening of the 12th, Noske summoned a group of officers to see what was to be done amid word that Lutwitz would be marching on the next morning. He asked Seekt to put down the rebellion using army troops, to which Seekt casually told him that the Reichswehr did not fire on the Reichswehr, the Reichswehr being the magical alternate word for just saying German army. Now, it was at this point that Noske's brain finally broke. He never sympathized with the people he had oppressed, but he had made a huge number of moral sacrifices in the past year to secure Germany's future as a united nation. In doing so, the ultra-conservative officers were protected and allowed to create their preferred army under the restrictions imposed on them. Now, the head of the army was informing him that nobody cared about those little sacrifices Noske had made or the protections that he and people like him had offered. 
Nosuke might have even glimpsed the reality the nation was not united. Nor would it be going into the future, despite just how many had died in his efforts crushing the revolution in the name of that national unity. His only defense was the police force, which Seeked calmly told him was probably going to side with the, with the push against him. Nosuke broke down sobbing, ranting about the army's disloyalty and threatening to off himself. Seeked quietly went home and instructed the army to stand aside to whatever was going to happen. Ebert, Nosuke, and the rest of the government packed up and fled to Dresden. On the morning of March 13th, troopers started marching into central Berlin. Many had a new symbol the far right was adopting painted on their helmets, the swastika. The push was bloodless. The abandoned government buildings were promptly occupied, and the police did indeed join with them. A far-right civil servant named Wolfgang Kapp was installed as the figurehead chancellor. While he didn't have much to do with the planning or execution of the coup, this moment would go down in history books as the Kapp-Push. Ludwitz had taken Berlin, but the question was, what now? Ebert responded to the Push by playing the only card left to him upon being abandoned by the army and police. He ordered a general strike to protest the Push. Freecorps probably didn't reckon with this counter, and it showed immediately. Businesses, transportation, and utilities all shut down, and Berlin became a ghost town. The civil service did not cooperate, and it took days for Luckwitz to get word out to the rest of Germany explaining why they had overthrown the government. News of the general strike, on the other hand, spread immediately, and the workers rose up again in parts of central and northern Germany, most importantly, the Ruhr again. The workers in the Ruhr had managed to hold off the worst of the counter-revolution in the previous year, and still maintained a lot more cohesion than their counterparts elsewhere in the nation. And they also knew damn well that if a dictatorship was established, they were going to be totally screwed. They quickly distributed arms and reformed a semblance of the prior Red Army that they had set up. Up to 50,000 men formed this fighting force, which actually managed to expel the regular army garrisons from towns like Essen and Dusseldorf. By the 22nd, the valley was in Red Army hands. The local Free Corps commander decided to keep his troops to the north in Munster to wait and see how everything played out before moving in to crack skulls. Back in Berlin, the coup was turning into a shambles. Literally, nothing was happening, and the troops were starting to get antsy about their chances of uh, long-term success. When it dawned on them, the rest of the nation wasn't going along with the uprising. And while Ludwitz had secured the capital, he hadn't taken any measures to reach out to groups outside of Berlin. Munich, for example, was overflowing with underemployed Free Corps troops that would have loved to take a shot at the government. But nobody knew what was going on, so a unit here or there decided to join in, it was already too late. News came in that the naval commanders had thrown in with the coup, but were then deposed by mutinying sailors who had raised red flags on the ships, just like in November 1918. This was too much, and the police demanded Cap resign as chancellor. He accepted this, and on the 18th was on a plane bound for Sweden. Ludwitz hung around for their day before deciding to flee to Hungary where Pabst had already made his escape to. The Free Corps units marched out of town and were disbanded. Back in the Ruhr, government again made use of other Free Corps units to put down the Ruhr uprising. Yep, even at this time, even after all the indications that the military right wing had no regard for it, Ebert government sent in paramilitaries to put down a workers' uprising that they had called for in the first place. You guys have no idea 
how frustrating it was to research such a self-defeating government like that. Now, the Ruhr had been able to partially resist before, but this time would be different. Free Corps units from all over Germany streamed into the area, and this time they heavily outnumbered the workers. Time had been bought again by offering negotiations to the workers while the troopers got into their positions, just as in the year previous, and the workers themselves were again divided by their decentralized leadership, just like in the year previous. By the end of the first week of April, fighting was over, and again, the Free Corps had cut a bloody swath, with one officer claiming a thousand dead in just the first two days of their operations. This was treatment reserved for the left forces. The participants in the putsch that actually initiated all this were let off the hook. The ringleaders were allowed to flee Germany in the worst cases. Or, as in the case of, oh, say, Ludendorff, there was never any question of actually prosecuting him. He would take his leave of Berlin and head down south to the more inviting environment of Munich. And in due course, the far-right scene of that city would introduce him to a rising ultra-right speaker named Adolf Hitler. There was some noise made among the liberals of the country to prosecute the participants, but it came to nothing. If this might seem curious to the modern listener, consider that the core system of Germany in this time, and also moving forward into the rest of the 20s, was a holdover from imperial Germany. In the interest of preserving continuity, the Ebert government did not pursue any significant restructuring of the nation's judiciary. Justice system would be in the hands of men whose loyalty stretched back to the Kaiser and the Old Order, not some trumped-up republic that had sold the nation out. Patriotism would be the key quality that the judges would look at in cases of political violence. If a defendant merely posited that his actions to bring down the government stemmed from a feeling that the Reich was moving in the wrong direction, well, that was perfectly understandable. Not legal per se, but understandable enough that harsh prosecution was not needed. So yeah, that's uh, the type of uh, judge you're dealing with in this time period, which makes pressing charges very difficult. Uh, there was some political aftermath that is notable, though. Noske was forced out of the defense ministry for allowing the situation to get so far out of hand. Plus, given his episode on the eve of the pooch, his heart probably wasn't in it anymore. He would go on to be a regional governor of Hanover, until being forced out by the Nazis in 1933. He would be arrested by them in 1944, but survived to see the end of World War II before dying of a stroke in 1946. General Seat observed the chaos and would set about to remake the army in his own image, forcing out men like Marker, who could challenge him, and elevating others he saw as reliable. Tellingly, among those dismissed were those officers who had pushed to put down the push and defend the Republic, which goes to show where his priorities were. He would lobby for the remaining Free Corps to be disbanded, but that was already a foregone conclusion, as the Entente had noticed the paramilitary groups and were none too pleased about an auxiliary army when they had just imposed a strict limit on armaments in Germany. Siegt did keep a number of formations around, though, giving them non-military classifications such as labor units. I'm doing the little finger quotes there. You probably can't see it. These formations came to be known as the Black Reichswehr, which served as a secret auxiliary for the military. Elsewhere, independent free corps turned to the shadows under the guise of social clubs, 
Some went south to Bavaria, where authorities were sympathetic. Still others recoalesced as the muscle of various nationalistic movements that would gain traction in the coming years. The Entente did try to keep half an eye on the efforts to preserve the Free Corps, especially when the successor organizations were positioned too obviously adjacent to the regular armed forces. An initial attempt by Sikht to group an armed body under the pretense of being a national fire brigade was called out and broken up, for example. And for now, the militiamen had been pushed off to the side, and the young republic had survived. But there still remained the task to solidify itself and actually move forward without the specter of revolution and revolt threatening it. And now that the peace treaty was in effect, Germany would have to face its new obligations to the rest of the world, obligations that I will go over in more detail next week. Join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.